rocketed as a baby from the exploding planet Krypton. Kal-El grew to manhood on Earth, whose yellow sun and lighter gravity gave him fantastic superpowers. In the city of Metropolis, he poses as TV newsman Clark Kent, but battles evil all over Earth and beyond as Superman. Hi everybody, and welcome to episode 32 of Superman and the Bronze Age, the only podcast covering Superman's adventures from 1970 to 1986. I am your host, Charlie Niemeyer, and today we're going to look at the books with a September 1972 cover date. But first, I should mention that Superman and the Bronze Age is sponsored by InStock Trades. A mainstay of the collected edition market, InStock Trades has over 13,000 individual trade paperback, graphic novel, and hardcover titles in stock and ready to ship, all at great discounted prices. And most orders ship within 48 hours, and orders over $50 ship for free. Find them on the web at www.instocktrades.com. And please also be sure to visit their sister stores, Discount Comics Book Service, and My Digital Comics. I also want to remind everyone about the new RSS and iTunes feed for the show, and that I will only be adding episodes to both sets of feeds for the show until the end of October, so make sure you switch over to that soon. And after a couple of promos, I'll be right back with Jimmy Olsen 252. What's that? You thought I wasn't covering any more Jimmy issues? Well, that's true. But this issue is special because... It's the finale to the Morgan Edge clone story that we've been going over the last several episodes. Also of note, due to a little bit of confusion and miscommunication, J. David Weeder, he of Pad Smash, an Incredible Hulk pad podcast, an Incredible Hulk podcast, and The Walking Dorks, who you will remember was on episodes 29 and 30, will be making a bit of a cameo appearance for this issue. See... Like I said, it was a bit of miscommunication. He thought that the Jimmy issue was part of the August episode, and neither one of us realized the confusion until we'd already started recording. So for reasons that only slightly have to do with laziness, I have decided to use that bit of the recording to give you, the listener, the bonus of hearing Mr. Weeder's dulcet tones, which we'll hear after these messages. After these messages, we'll be right back gathered together from the far reaches of the internet are assembled a network of podcasts dedicated to the first and greatest superhero Superman The Superman Podcast Network is dedicated to covering all aspects of the Superman legend, featuring The Thrilling Adventures of Superman Golden Age Superman The Superman Fan Podcast Superman in the Bronze Age From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast Superman Forever Radio The Superman Vidcast The world's best podcast And Radio Kale from supermanhomepage.com As well as the audio dramas Superman, Last Son of Krypton and Supergirl, Last Daughter of Krypton, from Pendant Audio Production. Join hosts Michael Bradley, John Wilson, Billy Hogan, Charlie Niemeyer, Jeffrey Taylor, Michael Bailey, J. David Weeder, Cayman Stoll, I'm Isaac, I'm Adam, Dave Eunice, and co-host Scotty V. at supermanpodcastnetwork.com. 
www.thepowerofthenetwork.com. Take the mightiest superheroes on Earth. Each an invincible champion of justice. Band them together in a common cause against crime and evil. And you have the Justice League of America. And now their adventures are being chronicled on the Podcast of Justice, a bi-weekly podcast covering every issue of the Justice League from the Silver Age to today. Join hosts Charlie Niemeyer and Isaac Frisbee podcastofjustice.blogspot.com And we're back, and we've got Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, number 252, which has a cover date of September of 1972, as uh, do all these issues we're covering this week. Uh, it had an on-sale date of June 20th, 1972, and a cover price of 20 cents. And it has a pretty interesting cover with Superman and Jimmy Olsen about to get attacked by some robot with a cannon. It's pretty cool. Um, So the title of the story is The Double-Edged Sword. It was written by E. Nelson Bridwell and Steve Skeets, penciled by Mike Sikowski, which is the first time I think I've been able to say that name without screwing it up, inked by Bob Oskner, and edited by Joe Orlando. And we begin the story outside of an old, dilapidated house where the Metropolis police are in a standoff with a cop killer, and of course, Jimmy and his fellow reporter, Percy, are assigned to cover the story. Jimmy's friend, Lieutenant Corrigan, decides he's going to move in, but is quickly shot. Jimmy, willing to sacrifice himself to save his friend, retrieves Corrigan and gets him to safety. Nearby, a double A WGBS mobile newsroom pulls up, and inside, Clark Kent swiftly changes to Superman. He then flies into the house to find killer robot cannons, which he makes short work of. Jimmy and the police arrive, and Superman reveals that the cop killer got away. When Jimmy asks how, since all the exits were covered, Superman points out that his X-ray vision reveals a tunnel under the building, similar to the one under the discotheque, which I mentioned a little bit of at the end of the yeah, at the end of episode 28. And since the cop killer has an intergang connection, he is convinced that this is all connected to Darkseid. Back outside, after Superman leaves, Jimmy is met by Yango and the real Morgan Edge. And once again, we flash back to how Edge was kidnapped, cloned by the evil factory under Darkseid's orders, and then was hidden by the clone when it was unable to actually kill Edge. We also review how he escaped, but that not even Superman believed his story. Based on his experience with the Evil Factory, Jimmy does believe the story, and all three of them ride back to WGBS. Unfortunately, an intergang agent spots the trio and radios to Edge's clone that they are headed his way. The clone then calls up the kill. Yeah, not the killer. He just calls up killer. The clone. The clone. Ha! Huh. The clone then calls up killer and orders him to take them out. The killers intercept their, our heroes and fire all kinds of weaponry, which doesn't seem to do a darn bit of damage, but Jimmy and the gang are able to narrowly escape and make it to the WGBS building. After busting through a studio and interrupting a talk show with their chase and attempted murder, Jimmy has Edge hide in the film library while he and Yango hide in a recording studio. 
Unfortunately, this makes them sitting ducks as the killers start playing all kinds of sound effects in the library at full volume in an attempt to force the heroes out. Meanwhile, Percy, who has returned to WGBS and saw the real Edge duck into the film library, but doesn't understand the full situation, heads up to Edge's office and informs the clone of what he just saw. So the clone sends him away, then calls Tombstone Greer, the top the cop killer from earlier in the issue, and gives him the assignment to kill Edge. Greer accepts the assignment, bragging about his neutron gun, which will turn him to ashes. And since it's apparently from Apocalypse, I'd say he's probably right. Outside, Superman is busy looking for Greer when he's able to pick up the loud sound effects coming from the soundproof recording studio. After also hearing Jimmy, he busts in, takes out the inner gang killers, and turns off the noise. Up in Edge's office, the clone is visited by Darkseid, who reveals that he knows all about the real Edge being, still being alive and hits the clone with his Omega Beams. The clone feels a great amount of pain, but finds that he hasn't been killed He's just been teleported to the file library to confront the real Edge and finish the job he was given in the first place. After a short tussle, the clone is about to take out Edge when Greer shows up and, thinking that the, Ed, that the clone is the real Morgan Edge, blasts him with a neutron gun, which really does reduce him to ash, so it lived up to the advertising. He's about to take out Edge as well, but Superman busts in with Jimmy and Yango in tow. Greer blasts the Man of Steel, which does end up wounding the hero. He's about to shoot Superman again, but Jimmy throws a couple film cans at the criminal, causing him to wheel around and take aim at Jimmy. As he tightens his finger on the trigger, Superman reaches out, and while the caption doesn't mention it, it appears by the art that Superman has turned the neutron gun around so that Greer ends up blasting himself. Which is weird. Uh, either way, Greer's dead. At this point, Superman apologizes to Edge for not believing him before, and it is decided that the best thing to do is for Edge to resume his life without letting anyone else know what really happened. The story ends the next day as Edge and Jimmy report to work, and while Edge heads into his office, Jimmy sees Percy make a move on his favorite female co-worker, Meg, and ask her out for the evening. So Jimmy, moping, decides to go visit Lieutenant Corrigan at the hospital. And that brings an edge, or an edge, that brings an end to the Clone of Morgan Edge storyline. What did you think about the issue? I, I mean, I, I didn't have a lot until we got to Superman essentially killing Tombstone. <laughs> Not essentially, I mean, that's pretty blatant. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking the same thing, too. I got a little bit of a note on that, but yeah, that was a little wrong. But anyway, um, did you have any overall stuff, or I can just go into my notes, and then we can hit yours when we get to yeah, those Yeah, go pages. right ahead. I'll just bounce off yours. <laughs> okay. Well, first of all, um, I just wanted to say that I'm not a fan of the art. Um, I've never been a Sikowski fan, no, uh, other than maybe some of the times Anderson inked them on a cover to Justice League. But um, even though I do like Bob Oster's inking, and it does improve the artwork a little bit, it still looks like poo. I disagree, though. I actually okay. like the art because it reminds me of Tom Grummet. Really? A little bit. It's not as sharp as Grummet would be, but, I mean, well, besides the way he drew Darkseid, mm -hmm. everything else was pretty decent. A little rushed at parts, but overall, yeah, definitely had that Grummet feel that I liked. The very, it could have used a little bit of sharpness, but that's about it. Hmm, okay. 
well, I'll let that go. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, all in all, though, I thought the story was a pretty action-packed end to the Morgan Edge saga, and despite the art. Uh, on page three, um, I thought it was interesting that Jimmy Olsen, a young reporter, is able to dodge all that gunfire, but a trained police officer could not. Because, you know, Jimmy ain't Robin. Um, so I thought that was pretty, especially since Jimmy had, went in picked up the cop, and then carried him back out. It just seemed a little fit, a uh, little um, not right. No. What's the word I'm looking for? Awkward <laughs> Thank is a you. good word. Thank he, you. That's a good one. he throws the cop down. I know. He's like, wham! That's going to hurt. Well, <laughs> but, the cop was essentially safe. He, he was, I mean, he wasn't in cover, but he was down. Yeah, he was laying flat on the ground. He wasn't going to go, uh, yeah, that, that was kind of like we need we need to fill something. We need a couple pages, and we need Jimmy to do something. So let's have him do this. And it just didn't really work for me. Um, now, on page five, I don't know who Percy is really because I haven't been reading the Jimmy stuff since Kirby's uh, run ended. But um, by page five, I already don't like him. Oh, he's a little he weasel. Just, yeah, he's a weasel. And later on, I get to hate him even more. But still, even by page five, I've only read the guy for what like. I think he's only in three pages by that point, and he's a he's a he's a bit of a jerk. Um, page seven. Where did Jimmy get the motorcycle? He uh, drove up to the story driving a convertible car, which apparently is forgotten about. So I guess Percy took that back to to the GBS building, but somehow Jimmy has a motorcycle now. Now I was thinking maybe it, it, Edge had used that to ride up to the house, but then why would Jimmy be driving it and not Edge? Where did that come? I didn't catch that. <laughs> I mean, Yango also always, he's like, it's like permanently tattooed to his butt. But Jimmy never rides a motorcycle. He just has no problem just getting on one and driving off from the place, you know. Doesn't even well, say maybe, bye to Percy. Maybe Yango has extras. That's always possible. They are outsiders. Not that I know what that means, but still. He, <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. On page 19. I don't have many notes until we get to page 19. Um, panel 5. The clone looks like he's is supposed to be getting ready to like pummel the crap out of Edge. But the way he's got his arms, he looks like he's about to do the Mexican hat dance. Or the Macarena, yeah. <laughs> there you go, the Macarena. Yeah, see, any kind of dance. Um, it just doesn't look like... He looks mad, but it just looks like he's really concentrating on doing getting that dance number right, so... You know what he it is? Been. He's been What's playing that? punch out and he wants to be Don Flamingo. <laughs> That's gotta be it. <laughs> and um now that brings me to page twenty two, where it sure does look like Superman just pretty much killed Tombstone. Yeah. Um it all the caption just says he reaches his hand out. Nothing is said, but if you look at the gun, it is completely turned around and is facing Greer. It's not like Superman blocked the one end and it backfired, which that I'd probably be okay with. But this, he just, it's turned around and is facing Greer. And it's in Superman's hand. Yes. <laughs> and I, I, was, so, I did the same thing. I'm like, there's got to be something I'm missing. Or, nope. Yeah, I, I, I examined that one as carefully. I mean, basically, okay, looking at it, um, I've got it zoomed in. 
it literally looks like he took Greer's hand and forced it, turned it around so that it's facing himself. That's to me. Yeah, and I don't even see, it doesn't even look like he might have swatted it. It looks like he actually, he has a grip on it, and he Mm -hmm. is turning it. Yeah, he's got, he's using, it just says he's reaching out, and it's definitely, he's turned the hand around, so he shoots himself, and that's, that's something that you would expect to be hearing about on Golden Age Superman or something, not, or Thrilling Adventures of Superman, not on this podcast. No. No. <laughs> Especially since uh, the um, a couple episodes ago, I just uh, reiterated that there was a whole several-page thing about how Superman took a vow when he was just Superboy, that he has these great powers and he's going to use them to help people and save lives and all this stuff. And failing to do so, he would give up the powers. And see, that's well, the thing. The rest of this is invalid now. Mm-hmm. He should be taking off the costume, being a little depressed. But I think, is he trying to slide by on the fact that it was still in Tombstone's hand? Is that maybe the technicality that makes the difference? Probably. Probably the fact that he was probably still recovering. And he just was trying to deflect something and maybe put a little too much effort into turning the guy's hand. I don't know. He just, no one even seems to care either. And he's just like. <laughs> well, that happened. Yeah, that happened. I don't think I could have hit it and made another blast. And then I like this part, though. It, it's very telling because Jimmy's like, how do we report this? And he just said, and Superman just says, I don't think you should tell any, you, I don't think you should tell the public anything about it. Keep my secret, Jimmy. Yep. I know Keep your address. <laughs> <laughs> I know where you've been. But, yeah, it's uh, that's a little – I wasn't very happy with that part of the scene. It could have been um, – you know, could have just been an art thing like miscommunication, which I hope because E. Nelson Bridwell knows enough about – well, knows probably almost as much as – probably more than Mark Wade does now um, about Superman other than, you know, everything that happened since he died. So I would think that he would make sure. <laughs> okay, there you go. <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> he doesn't know the post-crisis stuff as well as we do. But I'm pretty sure that he would have not written. Granted, Steve Skeets also co-wrote it. But I don't think that Bridwell would have had anything happen in which Superman kills somebody. Well, I don't think editorial would allow it. Comics wouldn't allow no. it. Not usually, no. This is, And it's got the little banner. I'm thinking it was just, oh, well, it's in there. There's nothing we can do now. Let's just hope no one notices. Move it Actually, down the <laughs> oh, and I don't have it on me right now. I was going to say, well, we could check the a couple issues from now and see if anyone else wrote in about that. I'll have to check on that later. But um, um, that's all I have on this story, other, other than pointing out that this, is, that this story has not been reprinted. And... Like I said, this does bring us to an end to the Morgan Edge clone saga. After this, uh, anytime you see Morgan Edge, unless it's specifically stated, because I don't think we have to worry about that, though, um, it's the real Morgan Edge now, and you'll notice that not too much changes, believe it or not. Um, <laughs> I, now, I went into the letters, and I don't usually go into the letters too much, but... Um, 
This is, some of this is about Kirby leaving this Jimmy book, and some of it is about the first issue post, excuse me, post Kirby. Um, and while we have the first two letters uh, seem to be about um, Jack Kirby being great, and it's sad that he's left, and how does Jimmy pick up from there? And then the first letter about 149 points out that this that issue 149 was an improvement over the Kirby issues. And it was such a great improvement that it was almost ridiculous. And um, I don't know too many people that would think that. I don't know anybody that would think that. But uh, Kirk Sorrento of Lawrenceville, New York, you might be the only one. Um, yeah, because the following that was Joe Max Sween, and he's not too happy about it. Um, he is like, um, the cover is apparently bad, the logo's too big, and the art was terrible, and the story was, the only good thing about the story was the introduction of Meg and Corrigan, um, and that the inside art wasn't much better than the cover. So that's, that's pretty sad. Um, the one thing I do know, though, because I have looked through some of these issues to see if there was any Morgan Edge stuff in them, and the art is very different from Kirby, obviously, but it is one of those weird uh, golden, not golden, Bronze Age things where they give him, uh, they give Jimmy some uh, more modern clothing. Kirby kind of still was stuck with some of the 60s stuff, and you, you can even see this. It could just be the artwork too, but you can see in this issue that Jimmy's wearing like a nice suit with the turtleneck thing. He's looking pretty dashing. Yeah, in my I, opinion. I, that was one of the interesting things about reading any of these books was you actually had some period wardrobe mm -hmm. for good or good or bad. <laughs> yeah, the the motorcycle gang was a little interesting. Yeah, uh, <laughs> the guy's got one little thing of hair and it's in a ponytail and he's not wearing a shirt but he's got a furry vest. So, but I, I don't yeah. not furry vests. I uh, in my I, closet just in case. <laughs> <laughs> they could come back in style eventually. Maybe not, but they could. <laughs> they could. All right. So, um, if you if, do, you have anything else you wanted to say about this one? Well, the the question, you know, you mentioned that people were upset that Kirby left, and one guy was. It was Kirby as revered at this time. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I don't know if he had living legend status yet. I don't know that he was living legend, but um, they did make a big deal just about every cover that this was a Jack Kirby issue. Okay. Um. The first issue, I think it says it begins here, Jack Kirby's here or something. And then they pretty much mention Jack Kirby on every cover, um, saying Jack Kirby says to read this, or this is another Jack Kirby epic, and some stuff like that. So, yeah, this was a pretty big deal. That um, This was a big coup for DC to have gotten Jack Kirby at all, and the fact that he was on Jimmy was pretty cool. I think because this was his first book, at DC. Yeah, so. he took that book because it didn't have a stable creative team, so he just figured, okay, I'll settle here because nobody right. has to lose their job because of me. Right, exactly. Which is and it had low sales at the time, of, too. Of Kirby. Yeah, I like that. That that was really nice. It's not like he was like, well, I'm going to take over Superman. Yeah. For a man and that could bust your head open at the drop of a hat, he was actually quite nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was. He liked, I think clobbering time was probably something he said quite often, but yeah, yeah. Um, 
but yeah, so yeah, he was he was a big deal name by this point. So the fact that there was one person that was, but I think it's also telling that um, in a letters page where they try to keep it, well, supposedly they try to keep things kind of like in proportion to the actual acknowledgments that they got. The fact that they've got one guy saying he likes that Kirby's gone, and pretty much the rest of the letters in this issue say that it's not as that the issues are not as good now, or they're sorry that Kirby left. Excuse me, is pretty telling as well. Yeah, that that Kirby was doing some good stuff, and it's sad that he's not on the book anymore. But you know, the guy was doing like seven other books at the time, so it's understandable that he had to. <laughs> whether he just got annoyed because they wouldn't let him draw Superman's face, or what have you, it's, it, it makes sense that he would have to drop something. I don't know how you do seven monthly books. You get used to it. It's kind of like doing seven podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> you pace it. I'll take your word for it, because I'm, I'm, I'm pushing it to get two. So Actually, I'm pushing it to get one, and then <laughs> I was dumb and did a second one, and hopefully I can handle that since I'm only having to do kind of half the work. Well, Three quarters of the work because I'm also the editor, but I only have to talk about one of the two issues per month, so that's not so bad. It makes a difference. Mm-hmm. I bet. Yeah, I've noticed that this month uh, with this episode because I was like, Superman, I can just read and enjoy, and I don't have to worry about writing a synopsis for it. It's so nice. <laughs> Speaking not of. That I, yeah, not that I have a problem with it, but sometimes it's nice to be able to read a comic without having to like, okay, I need to make sure I write, remember to write this in the notes and – yeah, I have no anyway. idea what that's like anymore. So <laughs> I'll take you. <laughs> of course you don't. <laughs> but um, okay. So uh, before we do that, um, I'm going to do some more, prom- couple more promos, and we'll come back with our next issue. After these messages, we'll be right back. The Hulk on podcasts. Hulk like podcasts. Hulk listen to podcasts while Hulk smash. The Hulk on Peter David. Hulk like to read Peter David comics. Hulk have problem making words. Hulk write down. Peter David wrote a seminal run on the Incredible Hulk for 12 years. Some of the most provocative, compelling stories came from this era, filled with striking psychological overtones, bold character developments, and sharp humor. Along with artists like Todd McFarlane, Dale Keown, and Gary Frank, Peter David took the Incredible Hulk and the comic book medium as a whole to new heights. The Hulk on Peter David Podcasts. Uh, Hulk not find Peter David Podcasts. Hulk get mad. Hulk smash! Hey folks, in order to appease the Rampaging Hulk, there is an Incredible Hulk podcast devoted to Peter David. Pad Smash, an Incredible Hulk podcast, looks at the entire Peter David run on the Hulk, issue by issue in a bi-weekly format. Join me, J. David Weeder, on a journey through the saga of old J. Jaws at www.incrediblehulksmash.com. Incredible Hulk and all related characters copyright Marvel Comics. Pat Smash is not responsible for gamma radiation sickness, smashed MP3 players, overturned vehicles, tanks thrown through the ceiling, injured supervillains on the lawn, gamma bomb detonations, property damage from debris, deep-rooted psychological damages as a result of intense child abuse resulting in an alternate self-destructive personality with the strength of an atom bomb, or anal leakage. 
invited to attend a podcast that observes the unfolding events of history. Come with me and observe the birth and growth of a legend. From the pages of a 10-cent pulp comic book to the newspapers, radio program adventures, theatrical films, and more. Witness the dawn of the superhero. Superman. Available on iTunes and at goldenagesuperman.libson.com. Every legend has a beginning. Presenting Superman. And we're back. Superman 256 went on sale July 11th, 1972, with a price of 20 cents on the cover and another cover art by Nick Carty. Uh, and the cover this time actually features art for the backup story instead of the lead story. So that's not something you see too often in the Bronze Age. The lead story is The Dagger That Ripped the Sky, written by Carrie Bates, penciled by Kurt Swan, inked by Murphy Anderson, and edited by Julie Schwartz. We open with a splash page showing Superman being knocked out of the sky and taunted by a futuristic-looking space plane with a caption that reads, The dangerous foes who have clashed with Superman are formidable in number and deadly in combat. He has battled man and nature, defended Earth against hostile aliens, brawled with the most fearsome of beasts. But never, never has he come up against an enemy like the menace you are about to meet. Lean back, look to the clouds, and behold the dagger that ripped the sky. Bitfork, Nevada is the kind of small town you'd think would be a pretty dull place on a Saturday night. But on this particular Saturday night, an angry mob of townspeople break into a, the Starfire Aircraft building to destroy a jet plane that they refer to as the Terror of Bent Fork. But before they can do anything, the jet tells them that they can't destroy it, then takes off. Which is pretty crazy considering that this is more than 10 years before Transformers. Monday morning in Metropolis finds Clark Kent about to leave his apartment to go to work when a helicopter flies up to his window and the pilot uses a speaker to tell Clark that he's been sent by Morgan Edge to pick him up on the roof. After getting up to the roof and boarding the chopper, chopper, mm-hmm, and boarding the chopper and taking off, Clark gets a video message from Edge telling him his next assignment to investigate the strange reports of a jet plane terrorizing a small town in Arizona and he expects a story for the Monday evening 6 o'clock news. He is to fly to Vegas, and then drive up to Bent Fork, or down to Bent Fork, over to Bent Fork? Anyway, he's supposed to drive to Bent Fork. Clark is dropped off at Metropolis Airport, but a faulty landing gear has temporarily delayed his flight. Since he really doesn't have any time to waste, Clark runs to the men's room, changes to Superman, and flies back out faster than the eye can follow, heading for Bent Fork, Arizona. Above the town, he gets knocked out of the sky by the jet we saw earlier, and is surprised to find out that the jet talks. He chases after the jet, but once they get out into space, all our hero can find are satellites. Deciding that the best course of action is to fly back down to Benton Fork to look for answers, Superman flies away, 
not seeing one of the satellites shift its shape into back into the jet, and via an electric thought bubble, which you don't see too often, maybe in Transformers, we learn that the jet can reassemble itself into any mechanical device it wants to. Meanwhile, Superman uses his super memory to comb through past Daily Planet headlines until he remembers a story about a cosmic-powered jet that looks just like the one he just recently encountered. But it was deemed too dangerous and is supposed to be out of commission. He then changes back into Clark to interview the townspeople, but finds that they're all a little, how should I put it, messed up in the head. In his hotel room, Clark decides that the best place to get some answers would be Starfire Aircraft. And since they'd be a lot more willing to share information with a guy in blue tights rather than a TV reporter, he changes to Superman and flies to his destination. Once there, Superman meets with an unnamed general, who does not get named this entire story, uh, who is all too eager to share the top secret info with the Man of Steel. The plane, codenamed Sky Dagger, was created by a brilliant aeronautical engineer named Dr. John Noville who just recently passed away from a terminal heart condition. But before he died, he made a little video explaining what he, that he divided, divided? He'd made a little video explaining that he'd devoted his entire life to the Sky Dagger, but a combination of some senators deciding that cosmic ray propulsion was too unstable, and the citizens of Benfort complaining about cosmic booms, silly, uh, caused the project funding to be cut. Then, vowing that he and the jet we're about to live on as one. He donned a science fiction-looking helmet and then proceeded to have a heart attack and die. Using his x-ray vision to check out the helmet, Superman discovers that the helmet can convert brain cells into intelligent electrical impulses, which means that just before he died, Noville uh, must have transferred his mind into the jet's computer banks and is now in control of the jet and has been for the whole, this whole time. Just then, a robot with the same voice as the jet, ironically, burst in, attempting to kill the general. Superman shields him, so the robot issues a threat. If he sees Superman in the skies over Bent Fork ever again, he will begin killing the townspeople one by one. In a great haste, the robot leaves. Superman gives chase, but all he sees is a phone booth. As he heads outside to continue looking, the phone booth changes into a race car and then drives out by making a hole in the building, because that's subtle, before transforming back into its jet form right in front of Superman's eyes. Due to the earlier threat, Superman does not give chase, but soon meets back up with the General at the Starfire Aircraft Control Tower, where he learns of an unidentified flight disturbance some 40 miles east of town, a disturbance that only showed up shortly before the Sky Dagger started acting crazy. So... Hoping that he can stay out of the Sky Dagger's optics, see what they did there, Superman flies out to investigate and finds that what is essentially a black hole in the shape of this plane. And from this black hole, Superman's supervision has spotted an intense flow of cosmic rays flowing out, which Superman believes explains how the jet is able to change shape. He also realizes that he needs to somehow lure the Sky Dagger back to the cosmic rift but has to somehow do so without it seeing him. So later that day, the Sky Dagger is surprised when it is confronted by another pilotless jet flying around, one that is so much better than the Sky Dagger that it's literally flying circles around it. Angered by his competition, the Sky Dagger gives chase, 
The new ship lures the Sky Dagger to the Cosmic Rift, which the Sky Dagger realizes, but not in time to be able to avoid flying through it. Inside, the Sky Dagger finds itself in a dimensional void where no matter exists, just infinite energy. It's also surprised to see the other ship open up to reveal that it was a hollowed out fuselage and Superman was hiding inside, using his own powers to make it fly. Superman then coats the Sky Dagger in a specialized fluid that acts like a liquid mirror, reflecting and reversing the cosmic energy. Almost immediately, Superman notices a change in the jet as it thanks Superman and apologizes for his recent behavior, explaining that the cosmic energy has warped its electronic brain which leads Superman to deduce that the cosmic fallout from the jet is what caused the citizens of Bent Fork to act all crazy. After our hero flies the jet no, after our hero flies the jet back to our dimension, the sky dagger suddenly sputters and dives towards the ground. Superman catches it before it can crash, but realizes that the jet's cosmic engine has burnt out, meaning that Dr. Noville has died again. Superman then vows to turn the Sky Dagger into a monument to a man who was ahead of his time. Okay, uh, page four, panel one. Um, I'm guessing Morgan Edge has never heard of a telephone. Uh, also, wouldn't a helicopter flying that close to a building be dangerous in some way? I would imagine it cause all kinds of trouble. Uh, and panels four through six. Um... The way Edge is acting and being demanding doesn't seem to be much different than the Edge clone, does he? Now, I'm wondering, though, just because, not because of the timing, but just because the way it's written, I'm wondering if, if Carrie Bates knew about the fact that the Edge clone was now Edge again, or what. So, it could be the Edge clone in this story, I'm not sure. Uh... I don't know how closely they were all working together. The Jimmy Olsen issue and the um, Lois issues were edited by different people, and I know that they pretty much kept apart in those days, so it's hard. There's no telling. Uh, page 8. The people of Benfork are hilariously weird in this story. Um, I mean, I did get a laugh. We have the first guy. First of all, the town is got no paved roads. I should point that out. But the first guy Clark talks to literally is just staring up at the sky, saying he doesn't dare look down because you never know when a jet is going to swoop over. Then he talks to this old lady, talking about uh, a vulture is always circling the town, waiting, waiting for them to die. Then you got another guy who looks like he's wearing Civil War outfit, and he's got a cannon with a bunch of cannonballs. And he tells... Um, Clark, that the next time it passes over, he's going to shoot that thing with its trusty cannon. He missed the first 14 shots, but this time he's feeling pretty lucky. And then the last person he talks to is a young woman, and she's acting like a plane and goes, Whoosh! Goes my engine, Mr. Kent. I've become a jet, too. Now, pardon me, I have to come in for a landing. And if you can see the kind of expression that Swan puts on Clark's face on that last part, it's pretty crazy. But if you notice, they get kind of weirder as he goes. That was pretty cool. Uh, page 9, on panel 2, I think it's just a weird coloring error, but they make the general look sickly pale. Because I know it's a mixture of colors to get the peach or Caucasian color skin. And I think they got the yellow part, but they forgot the, the dots of magenta that make it look peach. Or whatever color you want to call it. Fleshy. So, 
it just looks kind of weird. And on page 12, apparently the Sky Dagger's shape changing ability includes a mass change because the phone booth is a great deal smaller than the race car, which is also smaller than the plane. And the I think the satellite's probably bigger. Well, actually, it looks smaller than the plane, but it's probably bigger than at least a phone booth. So, yeah, that was weird. Um, overall, though, I thought it was a pretty cool story. Um, really science fiction-y with the whole brain thing. But I didn't mind it. It was a pretty good story, and the art was, again, fantastic. I just, uh, as you know, I'm a, I'm a fan of Swan, and I'm a fan of Swanderson, now that they've been getting to get... Been, doing this long enough that they're really starting to gel real well. So, yeah, I thought it was a good story. Now, a glimpse at the man behind the mild-mannered facade of the gentleman reporter. When he's not being the mighty Superman, what is he being? For the answer, treat yourself to this tale in a series that shows the drama, the excitement, and the humanity of the private life of Clark Kent. And our backup story this time is Brother for a Day, written by Carrie Bates, penciled by Kurt Swan, and inked by Murphy Anderson. Now, every fourth weekend, area bachelors give up their Saturday to act as bud brothers, someone for young, underprivileged, fatherless boys to hang out with and look up to, similar to the big brother program many cities have today. In one such boys club, we see four young boys, three of which are excited for this Saturday because one gets to spend the day with an astronaut, one is going to spend the day with a pro football player, and one will be spending the day with a movie star. But Mickey Moran is disappointed, because he's spending the day with Clark Kent, who he's never heard of before. Clark picks up Mickey in his rolling newsroom, but ends up getting a parking ticket, because the news van takes up two spaces, and Clark only put money in one parking meter. And I should also note that just because it's the Times, apparently it only cost a dime to park the vehicle for a few minutes, whereas today a quarter gets you maybe 15 minutes, depending on the city. Um, Clark doesn't try to argue his way out of the ticket because he was clearly in the wrong, uh, which unfortunately does nothing to impress Mickey. Uh, so later on in the morning, Clark tells Mickey that he's taking him to the open forest to help film the migration of a rare yellow speckled warbler for a documentary, which of course leaves Mickey less than excited, because, yeah. Uh, so soon, they come upon a group of circus performers from a circus that is set up on the other side of the forest. One of them, a hypnotist, asks for their help looking for Xena, the Amazon girl. Apparently he was trying out a new hypnotic trick to make Xena think she was a real tiger, a spell that would be broken by showing her her reflection. Unfortunately, she kind of went crazy and ran out into the forest before she could be shown her reflection. So now she's running around the forest thinking she's a ferocious tiger. So Clark offers to help, and instead of trying to change the Superman, decides he'd rather uh, try to impress Mickey by handling things as Clark. So he hooks up a video camera on Mickey's shoulder, and they go out to check the west end of the forest. Coincidentally, that just so happens to be where Xena is as she attacks Clark by jumping out of a tree. Clark is, able to hold her Clark is able to hold her off long enough to get her to throw him into a patch of pitcher plants, which are the kind of plants that 
look like little cups on the top so they can hold water like when it rains and since it's just recently rained they're all full of water so Clark is able to pour enough water out of them into his hat that he's been wearing this whole story uh, and is able to show Zena her reflection before she can attack him breaking the hypnotic spell Mickey, who's filmed the whole thing, thinks that Clark was just lucky because Zena saw her reflection in his glasses. Since Clark can't explain that his glasses don't show a reflection without revealing his Kryptonian origins, he just gives up, puts his hat back on, forgetting that it still has water in it, which still does nothing to impress Mickey. Okay, so let me get this straight. I understand that this is a Clark Kent series and you can't be switching to Superman in the Clark Kent series. That makes sense. I understand that. But in this situation, Clark would rather put both Mickey and Xena in danger rather than just come up with an excuse to change to Superman and take care of things quickly. And also by, you know, hampering Mickey's ability to run by tying a shoulder to his or tying a shoulder to his camera. Yeah. By tying a camera to his shoulder. Hello. And they said that Xena was pretty dangerous in her condition. Either she could hurt somebody or a hunter or someone could mistake her as a crazy person and shoot her. So, yeah, that just doesn't sound like him. So, um, also, she could have been in a different part of the forest and attacked the hypnotist without Clark ever knowing, which would have been bad. I mean, he could have even exiled himself to space for that. So, if you can't tell, I'm not a huge fan of the story. The art, on the other hand, was pretty good. Uh, it's not often that we get to see the Swanderson art team on a backup feature. Well, not in the Superman book, and not recently, anyway. And while it isn't mentioned very often, Swan draws a heck of a sexy woman. Even without the TNA shots you see more often these days. Xena uh, is in a... It's in a skin, she's in a skin tight costume, which doesn't have a zipper or anything, so I don't know how she does it. But uh, it does have boots, though. So, but it goes from her neck and covers everything else. Even, well, maybe not her hands. No, her hands are free. But everything else is covered. So it's pretty amazing that he gets the female form very nicely uh, drawn. Um, yeah. But anyway. Um, I also thought it was interesting, uh, he tries to impress Mickey, and it ends up being pointless anyway, because Mickey thinks that Clark's glasses are reflective. Now, I'm not sure about the uh, continuity here. I'm not completely sure if it's ever been explained that Clark's glasses don't give off a reflection. I would imagine they would. I don't, uh, I don't know why being Kryptonian would prevent that, but... Yeah, I don't know if, I don't even know if it gets mentioned anymore after this. So, anyway. But, yeah, if anyone knows about that, feel free to write in at superbronze1970. Dot, dot gmail, yeah, superman19, superbronze1970 at gmail.com. Okay, so with that done, here's a couple more promos, and then action comics. Messages. We'll be right back. Boys and girls, your attention, please. Presenting a new exciting radio program featuring the thrilling adventures of an amazing and incredible personality. Faster than a speeding bullet. 
thrilling adventures of Superman, a journey through the golden age of the Man of Steel in comics, radio, and film. Available at GreatCrypton.com Look! Up in the sky! It's a bird! It's a plane! No, it's SupermanHomePage.com The number one Superman fan site in the world! SupermanHomePage.com Covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today News, reviews, rumors, and reports SupermanHomePage.com For all your Superman comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, radio shows, and more Everything you ever wanted to know about the Man of and more. SupermanHomePage.com Superman is a copyrighted feature appearing in Action Comics magazine. Action Comics number 416, which had a sale date of July 27, 1972, and a price of 20 cents, with another cover by Nick Carty. This one uh, has titled Superman, You Scare Me to Death. Uh, the cover shows Superman crashing into a burning building and a lady in the wheelchair just telling him to stay away, that she'd rather die than be saved by him because apparently he made her a cripple. Uh, in the story, uh, the writer is Carrie Bates. It was penciled by Kurt Swan and Murphy Anderson, same as the Superman stories. And the editor, of course, this time was Murray Boltonoff. Somewhere in the northern Atlantic, Superman shatters an iceberg that is in the shipping lane currently used currently being used by a luxury liner. On board the ship, all are admiring the Man of Steel and his super deed. All that is except a young woman in a wheelchair, who is so scared of the hero that just the sight of him is enough to give her a nervous breakdown. The reason for this will have to wait, as we cut to the deck of the liner, where a sleek VTOL craft and per the editor's note, VTOL stands for Vertical Takeoff and Landing. It's V-T-O-L. Uh, the, the aircraft makes a landing. Meanwhile, we see Superman return to the liner at super speed and enter a cabin through an open porthole. As it turns out, the VTOL craft belongs to Morgan Edge, and Clark has convinced him to let him borrow it for a top-secret mission. Also, apparently, Clark knows how to fly planes. Since we see... Uh, Clark take off in the jet shortly after. And while he's up in the air, the crew finds an empty wheelchair near the landing pad. You know what that means. Oracle's back. Just kidding. On the jet, uh, it doesn't take long for the girl to make her presence known. So Clark turns the jet around to head back to the ship, but the jet gets caught in what is essentially a tractor beam. Using super suction breath to take the girl's breath away and cause her to pass out, Clark then punches his arms out of the sides of the jet, and with a good grip on the jet's fuselage, attempts to fly it out of the beam. Unfortunately, he's unsuccessful, but he is able to bring the jet to a halt just before it slams into the ground. After exiting the craft, Clark changes to Superman and attempts to fly the girl out of danger, but finds that the island is surrounded by an invisible barrier. At this point, the girl comes to, only to freak out when she sees the Man of Steel. Since he's of no use to her while she's like this, Superman flies off and returns moments later as Clark. After calming her down, she introduces herself as Christy and explains her situation. As it turns out, she's also from Smallville. But when she was a little girl, she grew very attached to an old doll that she named Belinda. This attachment 
which a doctor referred to as psychosomatic transference, was some kind of psychic link that Christie had created in which she basically felt whatever pain was inflicted on the doll, or at least she thought she did. Apparently, the pain was all in her mind. Unfortunately, before uh, she could be taken to a specialist, a faulty electric wire short-circuited, causing a house fire. Superboy showed up to save everyone, but while saving Christie, a support beam came crashing down on the Boy of Steel who blocked it, but inadvertently knocked it onto Belinda, crushing the doll's legs. Days later, Christie's parents found the doll and had it repaired, but the traumatic shock of seeing the doll's legs crushed uh, left Christie with her, per with her legs permanently crippled to the point where she can only limp a few steps before falling down. This has also led to a deathly fear of Superman. At this point, Clark and Christie are bombarded by an energy weapon fired by the mysterious attacker. As they hide behind the jet, we cut back to the ocean liner, which is being intercepted by modern pirates, who are, kind of, who are after the diamond collection on board, and which Superman is supposed to be keeping an eye on, which he is, but he's kind of busy at the moment. So Clark says that he has a plan, runs around to the other side of the plane, quickly changes to Superman, and covers the plane with his super-stretchy, impenetrable cape to keep the plane from being trashed, then burrows underground to both keep out of sight and to escape the invisible barrier. In the space of about one minute, Superman arrives at the ocean liner, makes short work of the pirates, then heads back to Christie on the island, but she's missing. After relating to us via Thought Balloon, that while he was burrowing, he discovered that he wasn't on an island, but a meteor that crashed Earth years ago. Superman flies off to search for Christy, and soon finds her in the arms of a large automated robot. Again, ten years before Transformers. As Superman nears, the robot's head disconnects from its body, while Christy also seems to free herself. Spotting Superman, she freaks out again, but before Superman can do anything to help her, the robot fires an energy weapon at him. Dodging the blast, he kicks the weapon out of the robot's hand and uses a blast of heat vision to short-circuit the head, bringing an end to the robot's threat. We then take two panels for Superman to use his supervision to decode the head's memory cells and discover that it was a soldier bot from a space war fought in another solar system long ago and hit out on the meteor, which later crashed to Earth. When the VTOL flew over it, it thought that they were the enemy and attacked. At this point, Superman switches back to Clark and eventually finds Christy. Walking. Apparently, her combined fear of the robot and Superman cracked the mental block that had been crippling her, and she was able to run away. In heels, even. Returning to the VTOL, I keep calling it, it's probably the VTOL. Returning to the VTOL, Clark is able to radio the liner to be picked up then reveals that he had the diamond collection with him the whole time, as part of a deal for Clark to deliver them in exchange for exclusive rights to the story. At the end, Christie begins to grow fond of Clark, enough to say that this could be the start of a great friendship, and we get a caption box warning Clark that she will return. Now, I didn't think this was the worst story ever, but certainly not the best. Uh, it was solid, though, and the art was great. So it was still a pretty enjoyable read, actually, I thought. Um, now, as far as notes, on page three, this is still in an era where just about any comic character has the knowledge to pilot any number of vehicles. Nowadays, you'd probably see a pilot fly Clark, or 
he would just change to Superman and fly, you know. Perhaps Superman would do the mis- do the special mission. I don't know. Page seven. I'm surprised Clark didn't already know Christy, since she's from Smallville and he seems to have known everyone in Smallville. I mean, it's a small town. Uh, pages nine and ten. I like how the sound effects for the gun blasts are chewy, because I. I've just been watching Star Wars lately, so it just kind of made me laugh. Uh, especially since uh, last uh, last issue we had uh, it, uh, sound effects for, that were like Spock. So I thought it was interesting. Uh, page 11. Superman only covers the bottom half of the plane with his cape, even though the top half also has blast damage. So while he was trying to save the plane, that pesky wing kind of got in the way, I guess. Page 12. Uh, it does seem a little out of character for the way Superman deals with the pirates. Um, because he crashes through the boat first, or the first boat to cause it to sink. Then basically tips the other one over and spins it on his finger like a basketball. And then lets it fall in the water as he flies back to the island at super speed. And it just... I'm, this version of Superman wouldn't do that, but I guess since he had to make quick work of them... You know, that causes for a change to the way he usually does things. Um, now, there's one more story in this issue. And the title of this story is Oh Pity, Where Is Thy Sting? Written by Bob Haney, with art by John Calvin, and edited by Murray Bolton. The Circus. And always part of the circus is the freak show. And today we see Rex Mason, a.k.a. Metamorpho, unsuccessfully putting on an act for the visitors. But why is he here instead of with the Stags? To find out, we have to flash back to Rex, finding himself bored at Stag Mansion. So he decides it's time for him and Sapphire to get married. But she's too busy plotting her yearly horoscope at the moment, and doesn't want to contemplate marriage unless the stars say so. So, with a great amount of self-pity, Metamorpho basically runs away to the Martingdale Circus, which is run by his old friend, the Colonel. Unfortunately, business is bad, and not even Metamorpho can help the circus from shutting down. Now, with even more self-pity, he heads to a trailer to have a good cry with the other freaks, but they're too busy celebrating the fact that they're alive. This inspires Rex to do something to help them, and soon he finds a newspaper with a headline that just might help. The next day, a parade of limos and police drive through the countryside as the President of the United States gives an unnamed Asian premier a tour of the area. They come upon a detour sign and decide to follow it, and we then find out the sign was, you guessed it, Metamorpho. The chi- then, changing to hydrogen, he floats ahead of the parade and then changes into a pencil and writes a sign on a billboard, Welcome, Mr. Premier. Martingdale Circus wishes you a successful summit. This gets the premier's attention, as he's always wanted to see an American circus, coincidentally. So, they go to the circus, and having two world leaders in attendance is great for publicity. This is only helped by the premier now being so well entertained and relaxed, that they decides that they can now continue the summit talks, which had been stalled, right there at the circus. But as they begin their talks, a secret, surfe- sur- a secret service agent spots a sniper. Unfortunately, with all these people around, he can't shoot him. 
Fortunately, Metamorpho was there to save the day. Save the take. Fortunately, Metamorpho was there to save the day and take out the sniper. That night, business is booming again at the circus, thanks to all the publicity. The Rex decides to leave and head back home, having learned that self-pity is a bad bag. When he gets back to the stag mansion, he's greeted by Sapphire, who is apparently worried about him because the stars foretold danger. Seeing that he's safe, she relates that her horoscope says she should amuse herself, and asks Rex about going to the circus. Well, Rex just looks at the reader and smirks. Now, I thought this one was an entertaining story. More like a typically weird... But, but I, now, I thought this one was an entertaining story, but it was more like a typically weird Bob Haney story than the last few issues. Again, though, the art was really good. And on page two, uh, <laughs> you'd almost think Stan Lee wrote this back in the 60s. We have Rex being bored, so it decides, hey, let's go get married right away. Not the best reason to get married, which might be why divorces are so high these days. But it sounds like something Stan Lee would write just from uh, hearing about old Spider-Man stories. And on page four, panel four, I have to ask, why is there a new edition of the newspaper in the gorilla cage? Now, I could understand one from like a week ago, maybe, uh, or something. But unless this gorilla, like, is Detective Chimp and can read it. I don't understand why he has a brand new, uh, a current edition of the newspaper. Just me. Page five. I thought it was interesting because you don't see it too much, other than a cover I pointed out a couple of episodes ago, that the president actually looks a little bit like Richard Nixon, who was president at the time. So that was pretty cool. And on page four, uh, no, not page four, page six. I'm pretty sure a sniper would normally find a better hiding place than the middle of a circus tent and in full view of the audience, especially since he has this huge shotgun with a scope, of course. And you would think that someone would have noticed him going across the whole, you know, the center ring trying to get over to the president, but whatever. In any event, it was still a pretty fun story, even if it's a little coincidental that it just so happens that the Asian premier wanted to see a circus. but. And you can't see the look on my face, but it's perplexed. Uh, but anyway, this story, again, like all the other stories in this episode, have not been reprinted. So I'm going to do a couple more promos. Yay! And then we'll be right back and we'll go over the ads for this month. After these messages, we'll be right back. Sawate. My name is Stella, and I am the host of Bad Girl to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Bad Girl to Oracle is a podcast and site dedicated to Barbara Gordon, the first woman to hold the Bad Girl mantle for an extended period of time, roughly 1967 to 1985. The goal of BTO is to examine the character's history from her first appearance as Batgirl and continue on through her current tenure as Oracle. Each episode looks at vintage issues of Detective Comics and Batman and modern issues of Batgirl and Birds of Prey. I also keep track of news involving Batgirl and other members of the Bat family, and I examine Barbara Gordon's appearances in the media, such as TV, film, etc. I've been blessed to be able to interview writer Brian Q. Miller, and I hope to interview more creators and actors in the future. My goal, most importantly, is to make a fun, entertaining, and thoughtful show that people enjoy and from which they learn. Please visit us online at batgirltooracle.net and look for us on iTunes. 
Thank you. Hey everybody, my name is Michael Bailey, and this is the trailer with a truly epic ending to my new show about Batman, appropriately titled Bailey's Batman Podcast. Bailey's Batman Podcast is a weekly program that looks at a month in the life of the Dark Knight Detective, starting with the books bearing a March 1983 cover date, which is where my solid run of the characters' comics begins, and moving forward until... Well, at least until the books that came out in 2005, because that's where the solid run ends. Each week, I will give you a full synopsis and review of every major ongoing Batman title, with brief stops along the way to look at the important specials, miniseries, one-shots, and Elseworld stories, just to keep things interesting. I'll also be telling you what other books Batman appeared in that month, as well as what was going on elsewhere in the DCU. It is going to be all Batman all the time as I look at over 20 years of the character's history. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the epic ending to this trailer. You ready? The first appearance of Jason Todd. Death in the Family. Nightfall. Epic. No Man's Land. Do you have chills yet? All of that and more will be covered on Bailey's Batman Podcast every Tuesday at baileysbatmanpodcast.com Alright, the ads this month, many of them are similar to last month, although we do have a few new ones. Uh, the first one on the inside back co- or inside front cover, we get that same um, sales um, yeah, we get that same sales club thing where you sell an album of Christmas cards and you get a bunch of prizes like a watch and a mini hair dryer, which doesn't look like a hair dryer at all, uh, a guitar, a camera with flash cubes, you know, a stereo phonograph with records, which can't be good records, uh, cassette tape recorder. With batteries even, it looks like, wow, an intercom telephone system, you know, all those kinds of things. Uh, Continuing into the issue, though, uh, let's see, right around page six, we have, once again, another Roger Stahlbach, Roger Stahlbach, depends on how how you want to say it, Uh, Roger Stahlbach, the famous football star, playing Skittle Bowl, which is that famous thing where you set up a bunch of pins and you've got a long pole that sticks straight up and a ball on the end of a string hooked to the top of it and you swing the ball around and try to get as many of the balls knocked down as you can and the art on this is pretty cruddy not a fan of it Uh, I mean it it's serviceable but it's very cartoony and I've seen Roger Staubach that doesn't look like Roger Staubach I haven't seen my person. I've seen pictures, but yeah. Uh, then we have you can manage in the majors with Stratomatic Baseball. Uh, as a Stratomatic base major league manager, you'll make the actual game deciding moves. Hoke, Hodges, Alston, Weaver, and Murtaugh make. You'll decide when to pinch hit, play the infield, change pitchers, signal for hit and run, bunt or hit away. 
Only a Stratomatic Baseball brings you a so realistically face-to-face -face with the decisions a big league manager makes on the playing fields. I don't know what it entails. Tune in next episode, maybe we can. I don't know how it works. But we'll come back to that another time. Uh, then we have... Is this Columbia Records? It is the Columbia Record Club. Any 14 of these hit records for only $2.98 or, or 86 cents. If you join now and agree to buy 10 more records at the regular club prices during the coming two years, you will have up to 300 records a month to choose from. And they feature such well-known acts as America, David Cassidy, Neil Diamond, Judy Collins, T-Rex Electric Warrior, Santana, Chris Christopherson, Elton John, Arthur Fielder, and the Boston Pops play the music of Paul Simon, Rod Stewart, Bill Weathers, Jethro Tull, Three Dog Night, Barbara Jones Streisand, in which they misspelled Barbara, yeah, Donnie Osmond, Laura Nairo, and LaBelle. Another Judy Collins, Steppenwolf, The Carpenters, Black Sabbath, Simon and Garfunkel, Iron Butterfly, Andy Williams, The Doors, Neil Diamond again, I think I already said that, uh, The Osmonds, Jimi Hendrix, Burt Bacharach, uh, Harvest, no, that's Neil Young, Harvest is the name of the album, I guess, I don't know, Janis Joplin, The Partridge Family, Sly and the Family Stone, Tom Jones, the soundtrack to Jesus Christ Superstar, Chicago, James Brown, James Taylor, Engelbert Humperdinck, which is fun to say, Bobby Sherman, Carol King, Cher, and more. That was fun. And that's just the first time we noticed that. There's going to be more of that during the course of this series. Um, at the end of the first story of these issues, there's a small ad for the first startling issue of Commandy, The Last Boy on Earth. Another sensational DC Jack Kirby blockbuster event on sale August 29th. So I guess that comes out the next month. After the letters page, Uh, we have Kenner's Smash Up Derby, which you get toy cars you put together and then crash them into each other. And then you can snap parts from different cars all together. So basically it teaches you how to destroy your stuff. And that's probably why you will probably don't see too many of those, of those uh, toys on eBay. We get another one of those army, uh, army ads where they have the toy soldiers and the tanks and all that stuff really cheaply, but the art looks like it's from the Golden Age because it probably is. Uh, then we, that's pretty much it. We have uh, the patches again. You can order these embroidered cloth patches. And tell it like it is. And they have the cool peace symbol, a stop sign, psychedelic love, a bunny, a uh, gas mask, P 
peace with an American flag, a pollution skull, a life symbol, an American flag in the shape of a peace symbol, a cobra before G.I. Joe, well, not before G.I. Joe, but before the cobra that fought G.I. Joe, Roadrunner even with a BP, the U.S. drinking team, <laughs> yeah, uh, the Confederate flag, the U.S. flag, and an all-American patch, Budweiser, STP, I spy, which is just two eyeballs. Today is the first day of the rest of your life. A peace sergeant. The Woodstock Dove. A soul patch. I'm sorry, soul power. Soul patch. I, hmm. uh, ecology peace flag. The Beatles Sergeant Pepper. Lonely Hearts Club band patch. A happy face that looks really bad. Felix the Cat. Popeye. Flash Gordon. A chopper. And a skull and crossbones. And then last but well, at least on the inside back cover, we have another ad about selling stuff and earning, or selling cards and earning prizes such as watches and race car tracks and a poodle radio and a Wonkle rotary engine kit. Uh, Stuka dive bomber, electric launch rocket kit, a bike. An, an electric organ that looks like it has a whole whopping five keys. Flashlights. Donut radio, which is weird. Uh, planes. Air hockey. Another phonograph. A TV set. Sleeping bag. And more. And on the back cover, we have the same ad we've had for month, for every time I've done this so far. With that great ad about the souped up versions of construction equipment with the boss bulldozer and the extreme shovel and the mountain mover and the screaming skip shovel because that is awesome um elsewhere in the dc multiverse this month let's see we had tarzan digest number one teen titans 41 with a neil adams it's not a neil adams cover when it's smaller, it looks like Neil Adams. When you zoom in, apparently it's Nick Cardi. Interesting. And uh, both Teen Titans look like they're either burying or unburying someone. The Phantom Stranger with an awesome-looking Jim Aparo cover. That's number 21, by the way. Wonder Woman 201, again featuring Catwoman, which uh, introducing Fafford. The Barbarian, and the Grey Mouser. And they're about to attack the two women as, you know, the women are attacking each other. Yeah. The art looks nice, though. It's by Dick Giordano. Uh, Brave and the Bold 103 features Batman teaming up with the Metal Men. And that's a Nick Carty cover. Is that... Who does the art in that? Bob Brown. I think I have that in a reprint. <laughs> uh, there's more. There's uh, Falling in Love, number 136. Young Romance, 186. Which aren't as much fun since they don't have enough room for extra article stuff now. Uh, Young Love, 99. Heartthrobs, 145. Uh, Girls in Love, number 173. Uh, uh, our, our Army at War, featuring Sergeant Rock, 249. Weird War Tales, number 7. Korak, Son of Tarzan, number 48. The Witching Hour, number 23. 
And none of the scary ones are doing the real uh, moody covers like we've seen recently. That's interesting. House of Secrets number 100 does, though. But that's a Bernie Wrightson cover, so that makes sense. And it looks like a 90, uh, it looks like the post-crisis, but before he became the clone, Luther getting attacked. That's because it's a bald fat guy. Uh, being attacked by, I don't know, green and orange guys. Forbidden Tales of Dark Mansion, number seven. Which actually has a really weird looking cover. Uh, Batman, number 244. Featuring the famous Neil Adams, Danny O'Neill story, The Demon Lives Again. Which, based on the cover, is the infamous and very famous Batman vs. Rachel Ghoul battle in the desert. Where Batman fights without a shirt on. Well, so does Rachel Ghoul, but... Somehow, Rachel Ghoul has a full Batman costume in his hand, even though Batman is still wearing the boots, pants, and underwear, or the outside of the costume underwear. And a cowl, but it's got a sword through him, which is not good. Uh, Mr. Miracle, number 10, featuring some more Jack Kirby art, which looks really weird sitting on this page next to Batman by Neil Adams. Interesting. Uh, we have Justice League of America number 101, featuring another, uh, I think it's part two, maybe, of the Justice League JSA team-up against the hand that shook the world. And it's interesting because I thought she got kicked out, but Diana Prince, Wonder Woman of Earth 1, is in here as well as the Wonder Woman of Earth 2. So that's interesting. It's interesting how they use the faces on there, too, because Superman and Batman look like they're drawn by Neil Adams. Wonder Woman looks like she's by Dick Giordano. Hawkman and Metamorpho don't look like they're drawn by either. Starman looks like he's drawn by Murphy Anderson. And then the the Sandman's in there, but you can't tell who drew him. Uh, but Dr. Midnight, Our Man, and the Golden Age Wonder Woman look like... Not very good. We'll just put it that way. Uh, there's our Fighting Forces number 139, featuring the Losers versus Pirates. There is... Oh, here's another moody cover for House of Mystery number 206. We have Superman's girlfriend Lois Lane number 126, uh, featuring Dingle the Clown. And apparently women are falling all over themselves in love with him. Interesting. Superman's jealous, by the way, because Lois is one of the girls. That cover's by Bob Osner, and it looks very much like it could also be a Jose Luis Garcia Lopez cover. I mean, it's not, obviously, but it looks like it could have been. Weird. Uh, there's Wanted, the World's Most Dangerous Villains, number two, which I believe is another reprint issue, and it is, featuring an old, old Batman story from the Golden Age, uh, and a Flash story from the Silver Age. So that's interesting. We have Superboy number 190, featuring the Pied Piper. Well, actually, he is the Mad Piper of Camp Bravo, because, you know, with Superboy, and this is in the summer, you got to have a summer camp with just a bunch of kids, and he's leading them into the water. There's Tarzan number 212, 
which of course is not the 212th DC issue of the book, but is the 212th issue of Tarzan. There's Unexpected, number 139, which again is a moody, scary cover. There's Adventure Comics, number 423, which if you ask me, again, sort of looks like... Um, excuse me. Sort of looks like a, a Jose Luis Garcia Lopez cover, but again, it's Bob Oskner. And this one features Supergirl flying into a Justice League meeting explaining that, which is kind of scary considering that the, they're, that the, by this point they're the Satellite League, which means that they're probably all depressurizing. But Supergirl flies in accusing Superman of being a traitor. Which is, and it's also weird because for some reason it looks like everyone's got these weird looking sunglasses. Or actually, uh, from the way they look, they look like the glasses you wear now when you go to the theater and you see a 3D movie. Yeah. Detective Comics 427 does not have a Neil Adams cover. But the Mike Kaluta cover looks really cool. And it's got a lot of dolls with one of them playing a recording that says that I've just killed the Batman. The Batman. Love that, but it's really weird looking. That's it's kind of spooky, cool. And then finally, we have Weird Mystery Tales number two, which again has a nice ghostly story. It looks like, almost looks like a supposed to be a photo print. Weird, but that's done by Howard Purcell on the cover, so that's pretty cool. Um, and that's it for this episode. Uh, thank you again for downloading, and make sure to come back in two weeks for the ne very next episode. Yes, I said two weeks. See, as much fun as I'm having with this show, there just aren't enough hours in the day for me to continue a weekly schedule and also, you know, have a life. So, as of now, the show is going to be going bi-weekly. But don't worry. I'll still be around on a weekly basis because, you see, my new show, Podcast of Justice, with which I co-host with Isaac Fridsby of the World's Best Podcast, is also bi-weekly, and it's going to be coming out during the weeks in between. So see how that all works out? Every week you get a little bit of Charlie, which sounds much dirtier than I intended. Um, also, I want to point out, again, to remind everyone about the podcast feed. Please switch over to the new one. In fact, I'm also making an announcement here. The Podcast of Justice is going to be joining this feed because I want to put it on a better feed and I can't afford a second feed. And since we're going, I'm, I decided to go bi-weekly anyway, there will be enough room for the second podcast to go in with me keeping it on the same account. So you'll be able to get both shows on one feed. So make sure you switch over. Um, and by the way, when I say this feed, I mean the new feed. The old feed won't have it. Um, so thank you again for listening. I hope you all have a great couple of weeks. Happy Columbus Day. And here's Angie. Thank you for listening to Superman in the Bronze Age, hosted by Charlie Niemeyer. Superman in the Bronze Age is a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network at www.fortressofbailey2.com slash supermanpodcastnetwork where new episodes are posted weekly. Episodes are also posted at superbronze1970.lipson.com and supermanhomepage.com. You can also subscribe to this show via RSS feed and iTunes. All images, characters, and music used in the show are for entertainment purposes only. 
No money is made by the show. Superman is created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Thank you for listening, and God bless. Superman is also a copyrighted feature, appearing in Superman DC Publications.